this journey this week with the Lord Jesus Christ and the journey with this Passover lamb. And we talked a few times about um, the significance of this Passover lamb and the rituals, uh, uh, the Judaic rituals uh, that were around this Passover lamb. And I mentioned previously that there's some controversy about when, which day was actually the day of the Passover in Jesus' time. Um, was it Saturday or was it Friday or was it um, uh, some other day? Um, and it's not, in, it's not entirely uh, clear, although the, the prominent teaching in most Orthodox churches is that the Passover would have been on t- tomorrow on Saturday. So this afternoon um, would begin the eve of the eve of the Passover, um, and which was called the Preparation Day. And there are many accounts in the Gospels which agree with that. The verse that we've been sharing. Uh, all this time is from Romans chapter 3 verse 25 talking about how Jesus is our Passover and how he is the propitiation of um, for us and that's like a really big word I thought now would be a good time to explain it a little bit more carefully the word the word propitiation means something to expiate or something to make appealing um, or something to um, uh, 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 um, please someone who is greater. So it can be very easily understood that Jesus's blood was shed for us to make us somehow pleasing to God. However, there's a lot of problems. Um, there's a, pro- a lot of problems with understanding that with that kind of simplicity. One of which is that this is this was a very predominant pagan thought in Jesus' time, um, and in Greek thought that the gods needed sacrifices to placate them, and so we don't really. Um, that's not really the teaching that we adhere to. More than that, more than that. What also doesn't make sense about that is that if if Jesus was a sacrifice to please sort of a, a, a capricious or petty God, we seem to forget that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross cost God the Father a whole lot. Like this was his only begotten son. Yesterday, in the, in, in the Liturgy of Covenant Thursday, there's a beautiful fraction um, where God says to Abraham, 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 take your only begotten son up on the mountain of which I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice. As I was uh, praying the fraction yesterday, I couldn't help but imagine what it would have been like if I was taking my little daughter up on that mountain to offer her. And every time I would think about that, my voice would quiver and I would fall to bits and I'd go back to thinking about Abraham and Isaac and forget about that. And I could just imagine, I could just imagine going up that mountain um, with my playful little child 
who wants to run around and play and everything is a game to them, right? And then we say, okay, now let's build, let, let's see who can build, uh, you know, the first layer of the altar the fastest. So we run around and collect stones uh, together and we build the first layer and then we build the second layer and then we build until we build it up to an appropriate height. And then we start laying all the wood on order uh, on the altar and make a game out of that as well. And then Abraham takes Isaac and ties him up and puts him on the altar. We seem to forget sometimes, I seem to forget sometimes, that this offering, this offering which is offered, cost God a whole lot. It wasn't, it wasn't cheap. It wasn't cheap in any way at all. Given freely, yes, but not cheap. Another thing I'd like us to sit and think about is that this offering is an offering of love. I want you just for a moment to take yourself away from the foot of the cross where we've been for the last several uh, hours and to take yourselves to the temple where these lambs are being offered. So here you are bringing your, the, the lamb for your household. And you're bringing your lamb that's being offered for your household and you're going to take back some of the blood and some of the meat to do with it as we have previously discussed. Anyways, details not relevant for this moment. And you're standing in line with your lamb. And you walk up to the priest with your lamb and there's a priest who's holding the lambs and there's another priest who's slaughtering and there's another priest collecting blood in the basin and then there's another priest who takes some of the blood from the basin uh, and he offers it on the altar and then they give you the blood back and then there's another priest who's like, you know, taking the meat off the breast to give it to you and then they take the rest of it and they skin it and they put it, the rest of it on the altar and all of this is going on. All these priests and they all have their jobs and they're all doing their jobs and the lamb is looking. What's that one doing? What's that one doing? What's that one doing? And then he's looking at the lamb in front of him. And then he looks up at you with those lamb-like eyes. And then he looks at, and then he's looking at the other lambs. Right? And then you give the lamb to the priest. And then all of a sudden, like we're in the Chronicles of Narnia now, the lamb can talk. And the lamb looks back at you. And says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the lamb looks back and says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your woman. Behold your, your mother. This wasn't just a lamb like any other lamb. This was a lamb who had great, great love. Great, great love. I discovered something maybe a week before Holy Week and I had, I had discovered this many years ago but somehow I managed to forget it. Everything that's written in the Bible has multiple different layers. There's a, a layer which is, can, is likely to be prophetic about Christ. There's a layer which is probably historical and has to do with the people to whom it was written at that specific time. There is a layer which, is, which has to do with me. How does this apply to me in my daily and day-to-day life? How should I live my life and so on? But I've discovered something. That everything that is written in the Bible is actually about Jesus. 
Everything that's written in the Bible is actually about Jesus. When Jesus says to St. John the Apostle, tells him, forget about that one. Another one. When they say to Jesus, when they say to Jesus, he who said you can destroy the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself. And it says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? What is, okay, here's, let's ask the question a different way. What is the body of Christ? We are. The church, the gathering of believers, the ecclesia, right? We are. What is it that he is saying that he can, can be destroyed? He can destroy and he can raise it up again in three days. The church, we are. We are his living and resurrected body. You find everything, everything in scripture has to do with Jesus. The example I was giving a few, a few of the, the young people when we were speaking about this is, who is the prodigal son? When I read the prodigal son story, I often think of myself as the prodigal son. Sometimes I think of myself as the brother. Occasionally I think of myself as the father who is welcoming those who are repentant back into the, bo the bosom, into, into, the, into the house, which is like heaven, right? And th that's not because I'm a priest, that's just because I'm a Christian. And as all of you, when you see somebody who's repentant and they want to change their life, you get excited and happy about that and you welcome them back. So you could be the father, right? I want to tell you, I want to tell you that every time we see somebody doing something godly in scripture, it is Jesus. It is by the power of Jesus that they're doing that. The prodigal son is the prodigal son. He is each one of us when he decides to sell out on his father. When he tells his father, you're good as dead, as, get good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance, right? I know you're not dead yet, but give me my inheritance any, anyways. But when he comes to return, when he repents, who... He brings himself back into the bosom of the Father. Who is the one who brings humanity back into the bosom of the Father? It is Jesus. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. Everywhere in Scripture, everywhere you look, you can find the words of Scripture and they apply first and foremost to Jesus himself. Who is that faithful and wise steward whom the ruler, whom the master will make ruler over all his household? Who of us can raise our hands and say, yes, I have been faithful and wise in all things. Choose me. Right? That verse used to haunt me until one day I was fed up of being haunted by it. And so I told God, God, this, this doesn't work. It doesn't work. Never am I going to be able to say I have been perfectly wise and perfectly faithful. So that this can never apply. And I'm always going to look at this and feel guilty. And I didn't hear a voice from heaven or the like, ceiling didn't part and light come down and the big bellowing voice. But I felt almost as though God was answering me and telling me, read the second half of the verse, would you? And it says, who his master will make ruler over all of his household. As though God was asking me, who is the ruler over all of my household? I said, 
Jesus, man, I can hardly, I can hardly manage my own affairs. I can hardly manage my own money and my own house and pay the taxes and this and this and do that all in time. And every now and again, I forget to do something. No, no, no. I manage my own. You know, is I can't, I can't manage your entire household. He said, Who, who will, who will manage my entire household? Who do you think, John? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Who can love their enemies? Who can pray for those who spitefully uses them? Who can give and expect nothing in return? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. So then are the words of the gospel irrelevant to us? Well, because they can, only Jesus can do this, right? No. Jesus wants to do it in you and in me. Jesus wants to do it in you and in me. And that is the message. That is the message of this Romans 3.25 that we've been going over and over again. And this is the meaning of propitiation. As we share in his life, as we share in his life, we take on all of the characters of his life. Some things, we, we, we do them in, in action. Indeed, I don't know how to do it. The Holy Spirit works in me and teaches me and shows me and strengthens me and gives me the patience and gives me the love to pray for my enemies and so on. Yes. And some things we accept through faith. That God is working, is working this propitiation in you and in me. Where else does this word propitiation come up? Only one other time. It actually comes up as a noun in Hebrews where St. Paul is making reference to the mercy seat. Remember in the Old Testament, uh, uh, they had the Ark of the Covenant. It was like a box. And in it they put all these things which were a, a, a testimony to them that God had been with them. There was the Ten Commandments. There was the, a, a, a golden pot which had manna which had come down from heaven. There was the rod of Aaron which had budded when, when the other people said anybody could be a priest, right? And then Aaron's rod... They put all the rods, uh, and, and God made Aaron's rod bud. Um, and so they put all of those things in the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was a cover for the alt, uh, Ark of the Covenant, and there were two cherubim, one, one facing uh, one way and the other facing the other way, and spreading their wings towards each other like this. And the area in the middle of their wings was called the mercy seat. Why was it called that? Because that's where God would appear to Moses as a pillar of smoke or a pillar uh, or a pillar of, uh, of fire, and that's um, and that's when he would appear to him. He would appear to him there. What is the significance of this? Well, there was a feast called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is still celebrated now, and usually in the fall in September, I think. Um, and on Yom Kippur, the high priest was the only day that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And he would take the blood of a lamb, of, of one, one year old lamb, and he would go and he would enter and he would sprinkle the blood on the, on, on the mercy seat for atonement. Jesus now is our, is, is our blood sacrifice who makes atonement for us. But our understanding of atonement, again, is not to, to, to please an unpleasable or petty God. But rather, the real meaning of that word is just that word broken down. 
at one mint. To make us one with God. To make us one with God. That's, that was all of Jesus' work. That was all of Jesus' work, was to make us one, to make us one with his Father. In Ephesians, St. Paul says that Christ also loved us and gave himself for us an offering, a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus, having loved God and loved us, was able to make that connection. Now you and me also, loving God and loving each other, we're able to draw closer to each other and to draw closer to God. I'll finish with one question people often ask. People often ask, which is more important, to love God or to love our neighbor? Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says that then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. St. John the Apostle in his epistle says, how can you love God whom you... How can you say that you love God whom you cannot see if you cannot love your neighbor whom you can see? So it's, it's almost implying maybe we should start off by loving our neighbor. St. Jacob of Sarug explains the relationship between these two things. And again, we can see Jesus in them. Remember those good old geometry days where you had to draw a circle with a compass? So when you draw a circle with a compass, right? You're going to end up with a circle and you're going to end up with a dot in the middle. Suppose that God is the dot in the middle. And a circle is just a line which is, its configuration is circular and which begin, its beginning and end meet. So it's just a line. And a line is just a series of dots that are so close to each other that you can't see that they're, they're, that they're not separate. But, you know, from an infinitesimal perspective, there, there must be some separation between them. So you have a dot and you have a whole bunch of other dots that are around it in, in circular fashion. Because it's a circle, the distance between this dot in the center and any one of the dots on the circumference is the same. And that's often called the radius. As the radius gets smaller, what happens to the circumference? It gets smaller as well. As each dot gets closer to the dot in the center, it also necessarily gets closer to the dots that are to its left and to its right. If you make the distance between the, the dot in the center and any dot on the, on, on the circle smaller, the radius smaller, the circumference also gets smaller. St. Jacob of Sarug is trying to tell us, if you draw close to God, you will naturally draw close to your neighbor. If that's too way out there for you and that's too, too abstract for you, if you draw closer to your neighbor, by nature you will draw closer to God. The Lord Jesus Christ was incarnate, came and shared with us our life, all of our joys and all of our suffering. And in drawing close to us, he drew us closer to God. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. I have sinned, forgive me, my fathers and mothers and brothers. And